NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Hello, everyone, and welcome to NWP Radio. Today is March 15th, uh, 2010, and I'm your host, Elise Ivanadol, at the National Writing Project office here in Berkeley, California. And today we're taping a special show. Um, we're doing a show that's off our regularly scheduled broadcast time so that we can bring you an extended conversation with a very special guest, Mike Rose. Uh, Mike, who is a professor in the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA, is certainly well known to many of us in the National Writing Project. And that's because of really a career-long series of books and articles on literacy and literacy learning, um, with also a, a kind of a special focus on um, the overlooked skills and capacities of students that, well, that we might otherwise call underprepared. Um, and because of that, he's also had a chance to, an interest in looking at reading and writing not only in schools, uh, but also the demands of literacy and cognition across a whole range of occupations. Um, so we've been reading Mike for a long time, and we're thrilled to have him with us. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Can you hear me all right? <laughs> we can indeed. We can good, indeed. Good. We also have with us uh, Tanya Baker who directs national programs here at the NWP. Welcome, Tanya. Thanks, Elise. Now, Tanya is joining us because actually this show, this special show, grows out of a book discussion that has been going on in the NWP book groups Ning, where a group of writing project teacher consultants and directors have been reading Mike's newest book, Why School?, um, Tanya's been part of that discussion, and we'll bring in some of the thoughts and questions from that group. And Tanya, could you start us by talking about why people were interested in reading this book together? Sure. Um, I think I would say two things in answer to that question, Elise. Um, the first one, I would say, at least for myself, and I've seen this in the book group discussion, when I read Why School, I felt this is a writing project book. So what do I mean by that? Um, you know, I think a lot about the writing project and how it's thrived for 35 years and um, and what it is in the culture of the writing project that allows that to happen, even though ideas that we've taken an interest in have come in and out of fashion and um, ways of teaching, ways of thinking about teaching have changed in those 35 years, and yet the writing project continues to be a community that um, I would say thrives. And I think that's because we have some practices that allow us to move from theory to practice, back to theory, and back to practice, and to sort of be always putting those two things in conversation with each other. The Writing Project is a place where I feel like um, you know, not only allowed but required by the community to live in the complexities of the issues that surround education. Mm-hmm. And why school, Mike asks readers, of this book to investigate their own theories with an open mind, to look at examples of practice that are really hopeful and offer us hope for public education, and at the same time to listen to the concerns of those with whom we most disagree so that we can understand their motivation and their concerns about public education. I thought this was a book that um, deserved conversation, indeed asks for conversation, um, about the possibilities inherent in public education, and I thought, 
who would like to do that better than my writing project colleagues. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so for the past um, eight or eight or ten days, um, our friends in the book group Ning have been doing just that. They've been engaged in discussions about the really big ideas that this little tiny book, I mean, if you look at it, it looks so innocuous. It's, you know, it's tiny. It has this pretty picture of a school on it. And yet it just um, really takes on big ideas at the center of talk around public education, like what is the purpose of education and who <laughs> should be accountable for success or failure in, of American public schools and what does accountability even look like. And, and of course, when we take on any major um, any major idea, any major project, things fail. So what happens when kids or schools fail? Um, these are some of the questions of the book and the questions that um, my writing project colleagues and I have been really excited to talk about in the Ning. That's great. So for any of you who are listening to the show live, uh, there is a chat room on the Blog Talk Radio show page for tonight's episode. Um, some people have joined us there. We invite you to come uh, and post your thoughts in the chat room. We'll also be posting URLs to the book, to other things that we refer to during the discussion, uh, and uh, to the the book review of Y School that Tanya posted on the NWP website. So those will all be in the chat room. If you're listening to this episode as a downloaded discussion, uh, we'll also hope that we can get some discussion areas in the Ning and also in the NDP Site Leaders Ning and the Book Groups Ning uh, to provide some pointing to some of these things we'll be talking to. So um, thank you both for showing up and joining us. We have a lot of people in the chat room who were part of the discussion. We hope to bring their questions in um, as well, but Tanya, if you could start us off um, with some of the some of the initial things that people have been thinking about related to the book. So I think before we start, and because I'm sure there are listeners who aren't from the book group Ning as well, it might be nice, Mike, if you could just tell us about Y School, um, if it would be possible for you to give us a little overview of the book and maybe tell us why you wrote it. Yeah, I'd be happy to, and and thank you both. Uh, Elise and Tanya for that nice introduction. I just want to say I've known Elise for a very long time. I uh, met her when I was roaming around the country for doing Possible Lives, and then Tanya I met in the last year or two, and um, just really happy to be on, it, on air with you. And so let me, let me pick your question up. Uh, you know, what is the book about and why did I write it? It's, it's a little collection of interwoven essays and reflections, really, on different aspects of schooling, different, different policy concerns, different classroom concerns, and cuts across grade levels. So, you know, you'll find first graders in there, and then you'll also find folks in an adult literacy program. Um, you know, we don't often see these different levels of education brought together, and I think it's important to do that. Certainly, you know, in, in, in the last year or so, we've been very aware of how cuts and disturbances in one sector of education end up affecting the other. So I think it's valuable to bring, to bring all aspects of schooling in America together, and I tried to do that in these little reflective essays. I also wrote the book now because it just seems to me that our public discussion about education uh, is so thin and often negative. 
Now, this is a theme that I, I've been worried about for a while, as you know, starting with possible lives, geez, 15 years ago. But the way we talk about school matters. Um, so if, if the national discussion is one that is despairing and dismissive, um, says things like, you know, maybe public schools were once a noble experiment, but now they're a failure, or as one writer in the Weekly Standard put it, a year or two ago, started with the line, let's face it, we all know that American public schools are a joke. I mean, mm -hmm. if that's the attitude, if that's the, the the take that you have on this incredible institution, then you're not even left with a problem to solve. You're not even left with a door to open to try and figure out how to make it better. So that national talk, that kind of talk, has really bothered me for that reason. And it also bothers me because... The way we talk about education, and we sure see this with policy written from NCLB, and unfortunately now I think, I think we're seeing some of it in Race to the Top, but the way we talk about what education is, what matters, why we do it, it ends up affecting public policy. It ends up affecting what gets taught and how it gets taught and how it gets assessed. And we certainly saw that with No Child Left Behind. And furthermore, the way we talk about school and the way we talk about education, it ends up affecting our definition, our very notion of what it means to be educated. You know, what is the who and what is the educated person in the United States? And, and I would suggest that the, the image of what it means to be educated is a kind of a thin one right now. Basically, we're educating people to find their place in the economic order. I mean, that's the only justification that you'll hear in the president's radio speech last weekend, um, making the pitch for education and paving the way for the renewal of uh, the ESEA Act, um, Elementary and Secondary Education Act. There was only one place in that speech where there was any justification mentioned for schooling other than the economic one. And this from a man who is a very thoughtful man, uh, an intellectual. Um, so even with him, the discourse has been reduced to this kind of narrow economic, economic goal, purpose. Let me just say something very quickly here, and then I'll, I'll bring this to an end, this introduction to an end. I'm absolutely not against schools preparing people for the economic order. I mean, I come from a working class family and school made my life possible. It's just that if that's the only motive, then think of all that gets shut out, the intellectual growth and uh, learning how to learn, the civic motive, the moral and ethical motive, learning for aesthetic purposes, learning to learn how to learn with other people. Um, there's so many other reasons that we send kids to school in a democracy. And finally, I think it matters, that is the way we talk about school matters, because it takes us to the kind of very heart of who we are as a, as a nation. I mean, I, I do think that the schools are one of our central institutions, and the way we talk about school and the purpose of school, I think, begins to affect our sense of just who we are and, and, and what we want to become. So does that give you a sense, sort of my, my sense of, of what the book's about and why I wrote it and uh, and why we're having this discussion. It does, Mike. Thanks. Um, 
You know, I was thinking as you were describing um, our way of talking about education as thin and negative, it seems to me often arguments that are (laughs) thin and negative are really, um, we could classify as cynical as well. And I think one of the things that um, I'm always taken with by your work sort of, um, you know, steadily and over time is this seems to me to be this fight against cynicism. Um, And I wonder... Um, it makes you a good companion. You know, I always feel like I'm reading you. You're almost like a friend there with me, and and I check my own assumptions against yours because I feel like I can count on you to to not be cynical. And I wonder, um, you know, you speak in Y School and also in um, a lot of other places that you write, including your blog, um, about your own experiences as a learner and as a teacher and as a researcher all. But I wonder if you can share some seminal experiences that have shaped the way that you're able to hold on to this sort of hope and possibility and, and push back against the cynicism around the talk, in the talk around education? Gosh, that's a, that's a really interesting question. probably calls for a kind of introspectiveness that, that uh, I'm not given to as much <laughs> as I should be. <laughs> but um, I think one thing that's just hugely important, and I, I don't want to be autobiographically reductive here, but um, I mean, I was one of those kids that got that got uh, rescued really by a teacher. I was a, um, a kind of a I was a mediocre student. I kind of slept. I, I was sleepwalking through through school. There's lots of things I didn't learn how to do very well at all. And then <clears throat> there was this high school English teacher, a guy named Jack McFarland, who somehow just caught my attention, and and I ended up working very, very hard for him and and became engaged with learning uh, and, and through him and uh, engaged with school in a way that I could have never anticipated. And so I think on a very personal level, I know what can happen when a classroom works right. I know what can happen when a kid's mind comes to life that way. So maybe that's one source of the hope and the optimism that you're talking about. I, I, I think it's a grounded optimism. I don't think it's Blythe and Pollyanna-ish because I certainly realize how hard many people's lives are and I realize how hard it is to teach, to teach well. But I think that's one reason. Um, and another is probably the good fortune that I've had uh, Tanya, to to do so much work in school, to to teach for so many years. Um, for about ten years, I taught everything from elementary school through a wonderful old program called the Teacher Corps. Um, I taught everything from elementary school to I worked in adult literacy programs. I worked in this terrific program for returning Vietnam vets, getting them ready to go to college. Um, and then I've worked for many years, as, as you know, with college stu- students who were not quite ready for the demands, the critical reading and writing demands of college. So I think that kind of work just grounds you. You know, it keeps your feet on the ground. You said something wonderful. It was either you or Elise uh, at the lead. You were talking about how the writing project, and I've seen this from my own experience with the writing project, 
how the writing project works with this kind of wonderful oscillation, this wonderful dynamic uh, between theory and practice and back to theory and back to practice. And in fact, the way you folks do it, even that's a reductive way to put it because the two are blending and melding and weaving in and out of each other all the time. And um, I think that just... You know, again, having your feet on the ground in classrooms um, and yet being lucky enough to have conversations with other folks who are teaching and reading and pondering these things, it's just a way to keep you in the moment, in the work. And I do think that that can be another source of very powerful, grounded optimism. Again, not Blythe, um, Pollyanna kind of uh, kind of optimism, but really true optimism. That is an optimism that's based in experience and grounded in a, dear, a deep and serious hope. That's very nicely put, Mike. <clears throat> um, I think this idea of grounded optimism takes me um, in another direction, if that's okay, um, to talk about the way that people can disagree about schools. Um, one of the things I really appreciated about Y School is the way um, that it makes visible some unproductive dichotomies that fill our language around school and tend to divide us into either-or camps. I wonder if you could talk about any of those dichotomies that might be on your mind right now. Sure. Um, great. Um, it seems like it's such a characteristic of the way American education um, has developed over the last century. And, and maybe it's a Western trait. I don't know. I mean, it probably calls here for some deep cultural analysis <laughs> or something. But this tendency to say, you know, it's either this or it's that. So think about the way that plays out with curriculum, right? It's either phonics or it's whole language. It's either math facts or it's new math. It's either uh, paying attention to the process of learning or being grounded in the content, the subject matter content. I mean, on and on these dichotomies go. What about a different kind of dichotomy, one with powerful institutional implications for the way young people develop, and that's the academic vocational divide, that uh, distinction. And it just seems to me that these dichotomies are these kind of artificial structures. They're these ways that we carve reality up into neat bits, and then they easily get surrounded with uh, interest groups, with turf, with uh, professional organizations and professional disputes. They easily become polemical, and then the polemics overtake the consideration that, in fact, in, all, in, in virtually all these dichotomies, the reality is, is that both play into good practice. Um, of course, kids need to be able to attend to the sound level of words, of course. But it's not just that. And when you watch a good whole language classroom, let's say, you see all kinds of work being done at that kind of micro level. And for that fact, when you look at good classrooms that orient themselves toward uh, a kind of phonics approach, there's often all sorts of other things going on. The same holds true for... Mathematics. The, the same holds true, um, 
you know, for content and process. And, and, and geez, in, in the writing world, right, which is the world that, that, that you and I know a lot about, uh, we see, again, that distinction that's made all the time, right, between kind of writing process versus other more formalist approaches. And yet when you spend time in terrific writing classrooms, whether they're with little kids or adults, um, you see that, in fact, teachers are, 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 are moving back and forth, weaving together these different levels of what it means to write. So I, I do think that the kind of tendency to dichotomize is a real conceptual cultural problem of ours and it becomes further complicated because so quickly um, surrounding these dichotomies we have professional organizations we have professional battles we have turf wars we have the heat of polemics and then the kind of reality the complex reality of the way so much human activity and mental activity works kind of goes out the window So I was wondering, that, that's great. I mean, it's not great, obviously. <laughs> that's well said. Um, I know um, you also talk about, um, and I believe in Y School, you also talk about um, the sort of polemical nature of talking about poverty or high-need schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and you use this great term, binocular vision. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thinking about that. So again, we're in this, funny funny policy place right now this funny place in the society where i don't mean funny haha i mean funny odd and and um and unfortunate <clears throat> we're in this place where you seem to have to come down on one side or the other of the in the following discussion on the one hand you have people saying oh geez you know um Poor schools, poor neighborhoods, or poor rural areas. The the um, the challenges are so profound uh, that there's really not much that schools can do. And then, on the other hand, you've got the kind of no excuses uh, rhetoric that was part of No Child Left Behind. Actually, it was a very very powerful rhetorical dimension of No Child Left Behind. The quote unquote soft biggest bigotry of low expectations was the line we heard and the no excuses line. Uh, And that line says that, well, no matter how poor or impoverished kids are, um, good teaching can happen and kids can learn. And so we end up in this place, and this cuts across, actually, uh, this cuts across some of the traditional kinds of political distinctions so that you'll find You'll find folks on the left side of things and folks on the right side of things taking positions here that um, are a little bit surprising sometimes. But you end up with this dichotomy of um, if you really believe in kids and you believe what they can do, then poverty will not make a difference and you can figure out ways to surmount it. Or you get the position um, poverty is insurmountable. And in fact, what, what, what you're suggesting that I call for is again some kind of more complex perception that absolutely admits the disastrous nature of poverty uh, on human beings. I mean, if, it, if, if poverty isn't harmful, then why are we trying to do something about it? And as somebody who grew up poor, you know, I can tell you that it has disastrous effects. I mean, just think alone 
what not being able to have a decent eye exam or a hearing exam. Think of the effect that that alone can have on uh, early reading and writing. So poverty matters. Of course it matters. But why are we not able to see that, to, to articulate that, and simultaneously say, but there's also things that can be done, and, and we try our hardest to do it. And in fact, that's what really good teachers in high-needs areas do all the time. I mean, I, you know, I know it, you know it, we know lots of folks who operate with that kind of binocular vision, right, that you acknowledge the, the deleterious effects, the harmful effects of poverty, you do, you do um, and in fact, often teachers are involved in various ways to do something about that through social movements or um, different civic affiliations or church or whatever. <clears throat> but simultaneously, they are working so very hard to uh, bring the minds to life that, that reside in these children in poor neighborhoods. So again, that's another one of these unfortunate polemical splits that we end up with. Um, and I just don't think it's productive. I don't think it's productive. Why can we not acknowledge the, the, the awful effects that being poor have on families, on neighborhoods, on kids, on health care, on security, um, on having enough food to eat, on living in a safe neighborhood, on having just the basic kinds of protections? Why can't we acknowledge that and simultaneously uh, acknowledge the immense potential that resides in all human beings, um, that, that schools and teachers at their best are tapping all the time. Again, that's the reality on the ground in the good places, and that kind of com that complexity just doesn't make it, it doesn't have the kind of firestorm quality to it that the polemics have, so we don't hear and see about it as much. Thanks, Mike. I understand that Elise has a question that's come up from this conversation in the chat room that she's going to share with us. Sure. Yes, thank you. Uh, in this, uh, this larger conversation about sort of big ideas and how it is that, that we think about education writ large in this country, uh, there's been some discussion in the chat room. I guess we could talk about it as kind of the history of progressivism. Uh, some people have read, um, there was a recent piece that was mentioned, an NCTE English ed piece, and some conversation about that without necessarily feeling the need to respond to that particular piece. Um, I wondered if, if you would just share any thoughts about how kind of the, the ghost, <laughs> the history, people's vision of what progressivism in education is um, may be part of a problem or part of a solution. Uh, the chat room is wondering whether it's actually perhaps part of a problem right now uh, in, in kind of getting our discourse about education in the United States righted a little. Well, let's see. Um, boy, it's a tough one because, first of all, progressivism seems to mean so many different things, right? I mean, there was actually that historical movement called progressivism, and then it seems like today people use the term progressive often to refer to, you know, liberal or left-leaning kinds of practices and thoughts, both in education and out. And then furthermore, there's, there's, there's so many strands of quote-unquote progressivism, right, just historically. And, and depending on whether somebody is championing, championing or damning progressivism, they pick on 
one strand or one figure rather than another. I guess what I can say in this little time that we have here is, let's see, that that ghost, I think that's really a good phrase I, 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 uh, that you're using. There is this kind of big, lumbering ghost of progressivism, um, and certainly conservative critics have brought that up for decades now as the bugaboo, right? They associate progressivism with being concerned with the process of learning, let's say, or um, being child-centered, or um, a range of other other um, kinds of practices and orientations. So let's take those two, a kind of child-centeredness and a an interest and a focus on the process of learning. Conservatives, conservative critics, contrast that with a focus on subject matter. And uh, rather than worrying about the, what they consider to be the kind of airy business of the process of learning, they, they want grounded engagement with the subject matter of geometry or geography or literature or chemistry or whatever. Um, and so the, 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 the speaker in the chat room, the, the writer in the chat room, is right that this ghost of progressivism kind of lumbers and lingers over, and it has become a boogeyman. It has become a kind of handy characterization to dismiss people who want to have some of the kinds of conversations that we've been having for the last half hour, for example. Um, and again, it takes me back to here's another kind of reductive, dichotomous way of thinking about things. Any, again, look at any good teacher in any subject, and that teacher, of course, knows the subject matter, but also knows all the different tricks and ways and processes of teaching it well. You all know that, right? I mean, you, it's, it's, it's the same thing in sports. It's the same thing in so many other walks of life. You can know very well how to throw a football or how to explicate a poem, but teaching it is yet another thing, and it involves this rich kind of complex mix of teacherly knowledge, pedagogical wisdom, and content knowledge. And I think that the ghost of progressivism, as it's often used as, a, an, as an enemy and a boogeyman, um, is a handy way to keep us from, from admitting that sort of rich intermixture of both subject matter and concerns about the quote-unquote process of learning and teaching. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mike. And um, I should say there are, there are even more questions emerging and also some folks with questions calling in. So uh, I'll be visiting with them now to see uh, what some of the call-in questions are as you and Tanya continue. Thank you. Okay, tell them to make, not to make them too hard. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Mike, I think that this last answer about, um, about know, you know, how knowing something is one thing and teaching it is another um, brings us to another topic that's been really popular in the um, discussion online, which is what happens when um, teaching fails or when students fail, depending on how you view the failure. Um, but at least three chapters of Y School really take up remediation, remediating remediation, <laughs> remediation at the university, and I would say also soldiers go to school. Mm -hmm. Talk about um, 
a view that you seem to bring about um, a, a take on remediation. Can you say a little about what you think remediation is sure. and what it should or might be? Sure. So first let me say, again, that it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's criminal that so many young people go through school and go through school and go through school and come out at some exit point not knowing um, whatever they should have learned, whatever they should have uh, been able to gain some competency with, whether it's mathematics or writing or science knowledge, whatever. Um, Of course, that's, you know, it's it's wrong. It's, It's morally wrong and it's educationally wrong. So I don't want to make light of the fact that a lot of people need further assistance with material that they should have mastered already. Uh, And I also don't want to make light for a moment of the fact that at the community college level, for example, um, students, so many students, get kind of get caught up in in a series of remedial courses that have no credit, and it ends up just stalling them terribly and, and contributes in, in a number of cases to them not even completing their most basic goals and leaving. So let me begin again with this kind of clear-eyed statement about, about, uh, about remediation. That is coming at something again that one should have uh, in the system learned earlier. But I also... Uh, Tanya, I also take what maybe is a somewhat different view um, about this whole enterprise in that it seems to me that in a democratic society, in a a society that values people having a second chance, um, that, that believes that people should be able to return to something to give it another shot, and that's, that's very central to our notion of ourselves, this notion of a second-chance society. I, I believe that in such a society, there have to be these places along the way in the educational system where people have a chance to come at material again and to come at it uh, in a way that helps them master it. Furthermore, in an educational system that is like ours, that is, that is so vast, um, and that operates with such varied levels of quality. I mean, obviously, if you go to a fluent uh, school in K through 12 in, in well-to-do neighborhoods, the kind of education you're going to get might be quite different. Um, if you're in, in uh, if you come from a, from a poor area where schools are understaffed and under-resourced, and there's a lot of turnover and all of that, so there's a lot of variation in preparation. Uh, just as there's there's wide variation and ever-growing variation between rich and poor. Uh, so if you have these kinds of disparities, then you absolutely need to have some kinds of institutional spaces that attempt to redress those disparities. So given those two things I said, this notion of a second-chance society and then the notion that our system is is imperfect in many ways, then I think we're obligated to have these points along the way, and usually the discussion ends up coming along in terms of college, but these points along the way 
where people can have a chance to come again at material that they haven't learned before. Now, here's what's hugely important here, and it's something I've spent so much of my life working on and thinking about. What's hugely important is that remediation itself often needs to be basically rethought because it too often is, is, is grounded on, the, on very reductive notions about learning that, okay, if someone hasn't learned these math facts or hasn't learned to put a sentence together in a clear and grammatical way, if they haven't learned that earlier, then they need to come at it again in a, in a, in a, in a very basic kind of skills-oriented, skills and drills kind of way. And if we can just keep pounding that in enough, then they're going to get it. Some of the notions that we have about language and cognition related to remediation have been huge barriers in getting us to think about this second chance in really more robust and exciting ways, where we create the conditions where we immerse people in rich reading and writing, but we think of ways to, to scale it down, to bring it to where they are, to think of ways to engage them with it, to provide a lot of scaffolding. Um, and, in other words, to immerse them right away in the richness of reading and writing, uh, appropriately designed and engineered for where they are, and then moving them uh, toward a greater kind of proficiency. So I favor the notion of remediation, but I'm the first to admit that often the way we do it is not effective, and that's a place where we need some really serious consideration. One happy thing that, that I'm, I'm very pleased about in the American Graduation Initiative, that is the Obama uh, Initiative aimed at the community college, is one of the provisions is these challenge grants to institutions to think in fresh and creative ways about basic skills education. And as you know, some big foundations have been putting huge money into this. The Gates Foundation, for example, um, have been putting a lot of money into projects to try to help us rethink um, the, uh, work in basic skills and remediation. So that's that's my my sort of my, my thumbnail sketch of the some of the thoughts I have about remedial education. Thanks, Mike. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice there. I'm getting so excited about the opportunities of remediation or changing remediation. Um, I was thinking as you were talking about um, Second Chance Society and the, and the environment of any particular school and what it affords students or doesn't afford students. We were at a reading conference in New Orleans last week and we heard um, a young woman talk about um, her displacement because of Katrina as this eye-opening experience because she left the city in this you know, really bleak school that she'd been in and, and ended up in a school that was different than any school she'd ever been in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, saying she didn't even know that schools looked like this or mm -hmm. that kids came to school in this way or acted these ways in school. So mm -hmm. this, it just seems to me to um, hold this point of the importance of a second chance or, or an opportunity to come at something in a different place and in a different way. Um, you know Oh, sorry. Go ahead, oh, Mike. I was just going to say, um, you're making me think of uh, you're making me think of, a, of something I saw. I think it was on the Merrow report. He has been following the schools, the, the, the work in New Orleans, Paul Vallis's uh, work in New Orleans in putting the schools um, back together. And you know, there's a lot 
good to be said for this for the work that that Valis has been doing. But even there, it's very interesting because I was taken by one of the segments on let's see, and it was a kind of continuation school I think that was put together for these young people, these high school students who were grades and grades behind in reading level and uh, achievement level. And they, they took us into the classroom for a few minutes, and right away you could see that the unfortunate thing that they did was adopt this kind of um, one-dimensional mm. orientation to remediation and basic skills. And what I saw in those few minutes, if that was any reflection of the larger picture, was that even in this district where there's a lot going on, the thinking about how to deal with people who are below, significantly below level in their skills was, was, was so unfortunately predictable. Not creative, it was very rote, it was humdrum, and you could just read it on the faces of these young people in that classroom. So it's, it's, I'm saying this, I guess, to say that it is a difficult and tough thing to think about, and even in some contexts where there is fresh thinking going on, where people are trying to you know, start anew, um, some of these ideas and notions about what to do with folks who have not done well in school are just terribly recalcitrant and hard to shake. I think that's a nice place for us to transition from the individual and what happens when individuals fail or schools fail them to um, a larger idea of reform because um, we, um, I think people, it's one of the things that people want to talk about, what, what would good reform look like? Um, we live in a time where everyone seems to believe in and have a position on education reform. Um, and I wonder if it's okay if I pull, actually I have to say that um, my colleague Shirley Brown pulled these quotes, but if I um, gave you a quote or two back from Y School and had you respond to them, would that be okay? Uh, sure. I hope, I, I, <laughs> I hope I'm happy to hear myself quoted here. <laughs> well, we picked them carefully, so I hope you will be, because they're <laughs> quotes that we liked. Um, so one, um, on page 155, you say, citizens in a democracy must continually assess the performance of their public institutions. But the quality and language of that evaluation matter. Before we evaluate, we need to be clear about what it is we're evaluating. We should also ask why we're evaluating. Mm -hmm. To what end? Mm -hmm. And I know that sort of encapsulates your thinking, but I wonder if you could expand it a bit for us. Um, in a dynamic society, in a vital open society, our institutions have to change because time changes, culture changes. Um, even if somehow or another we came up tomorrow with the perfect fix, quote-unquote, um, we know from history that one generation generation's solution often become another generation's problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I think it's just part of of living in a in a complex, vital, democratic, open society that a citizenry has an obligation to assess and reassess its institutions. And 
that's what school reform is, right? Generally speaking, it's an attempt to, you know, to to reconsider institution the, the institution of education and to try and make it better. And again, one of the one of the things that No Child Left Behind got exactly right, and and Race to the Top picks up, is that there's lots of ways that we're we're not doing well by big chunks of um, the population in our schools, uh, poor kids, immigrant kids, uh, working class students of color, working class white kids. So there's so there's lots that needs to be done, and that's the that's what reform is all about, right? Now the unfortunate thing, and I guess this is one of the motives behind why school, and I know it's something from reading all the posts that the folks in the writing project have sent in about this event that we're doing right now, reading those posts, I think they share to, uh, in various ways my concerns about the nature and the shape of the reforms that we're in. So the reform impulse is a good impulse. The, the, the citizenry scrutinizing its institutions is essential, <clears throat> but the form it's taken, this focus on, on particular kinds of tests with huge stakes in them, the 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 negative despairing language about schools, the kind of teacher bashing rhetoric that has emerged, um, all of that seems to me to to not be those are just not the elements of truly productive and generative reform. So you can be in favor of reform as a necessary part of a of a democratic society, but certainly take issues with the with the shape uh, and the language. Uh, and the ideology uh, and assumptions of a particular reform moment. Mike, I think that's a perfect segue to um, Shirley Brown, who's calling us from Philadelphia, and I think she has some questions on this very topic. So if I can get her on the line, I think I did. Shirley would like to ask you a question. Shirley? Hi, Hi Mike. Uh, I loved your Hi, book, Shirley. and I love uh, Lives on the Boundary, so keep writing <laughs> so we have good things to read. I'm trying. Uh, okay. Um, Mike, I mean, I think you're uh, I'm struck by what you're saying about the reform impulse is good, but the form that it's taking is, you know, pretty questionable. And with the, the blueprint for education and the possible reorganization of the Elementary and Secondary uh, Education Act, I'm wondering how can we have uh, a seat at the table, so to speak? How can we have our voices heard? How can we enter into the dialogue, the discussion about what really counts in education? Oh, surely. Boy, I, I got to say, I mean, you know, earlier on, Tanya was talking about this this optimistic impulse in my work, but I got to tell you, when, when, it, when it comes to this right now, I, it's hard for me to muster that optimism. Um, it just it, it does feel to me like this is a runaway train, you know, the, the, the approach to reform and the number of people that just parrot the assumptions about school. That article in Newsweek a couple weeks ago that, that some of the folks probably saw is just filled with some of the they're almost like talking points out of the bad reform playbook. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it, it, it does feel to me to be pretty, pretty daunting. However, okay. So having said that, and having admitted my dark night of the soul here, <laughs> uh, 
Um, I, I just think doing, continuing to do and to do more creatively the kind of thing that you folks do. I mean, the National Writing Project is the example, is an example of the kind of um, organization that does have a public presence. And, um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that the National uh, Council of Teachers of English now has opened a Washington office in the last bunch of years, right? Right. Um, so, so the way that different professional institutions might be able to creatively and with shrewdness try to try to mm, create the platforms to enter into these public conversations and policy conversations is just hugely important. Um, it seems to me too that. You know, it's almost like some big foundation needs to put some money forward for for policy centers to, to you know, further kinds of policy centers uh, that would espouse these richer notions about education. Um, because something certainly that, that folks with a more conservative streak have done brilliantly over the last 20 or 30 years in politics generally is create a lot of think tanks that have been well-funded and just flood uh, the media with um, their various uh, position papers and talking points. So, and I know you folks do, I mean, I know that the National Writing Project is in all kinds of ways involved in policy talk and in and in a kind of um, public engagement. But I, I, think, I think we just need a whole lot more of that. And at the much more local level, on the individual level, each teacher, you know, each person, each parent who has strong feelings about these things, I just can't stress enough how important it is for them to find their way in their own local setting to make their voice heard, whether it's speaking up at a school board or writing a letter to the editor or some local papers, you know, have little spots for, um, you, know, uh, uh, opi- you know, opinion of, uh, sort of person on the street. And now, of course, with the Internet, there's so many other venues like this one and uh, that, that are also now open. So I think, it, I think we have to come at it, surely at both the macro and the micro level. Okay, Each individual okay. person can do what they do, and then at the broad level, we have to think shrewdly organizationally. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. No, no, I was just saying thank you. I think that you've you've enumerated a a number of ways to come into it. I'm also thinking about some very powerful movies that need more uh, play. I I just recently saw Pressure Cooker, which deals with kids who, if you really want to talk about evaluation, they're doing performance evaluation where they have to prove themselves as chefs. Um, And to get those kinds of things out in public view more often, too. Well, and again, you know, how how do you do that? Well, now the Internet has opened up ways that we do that, letters to the editor, talking it up at the local school board, at the PTA. I mean, there's a lot there. I, I guess, you know, we can't underestimate how important it is for just folks at the very local level to do what they can do. Right. Yeah. I agree. Thanks, Mike. Sure. Okay. 
There's a lot of chatter in the chat room, Mike, which actually neither you nor I are looking at, but I'm um, hearing about it. And um, I just want to say, I think following up on the theme of what can we do, that there are a couple of notes about things that people feel that you're doing to help um, move the discourse in a direction away from cynicism. Um, one person wrote, in Y School, Mike talks about how the beliefs we have about intelligence affect everything, how we organize school, treat each other, and what we think of as opportunity. And another comment um, talks about the portraits of thinking that are on your blog um, and talk about how these stories force us to see intelligence in different contexts and probably in new ways, too, that support our collective thinking mm. about reform and remediation. I don't know if you'd like to say anything about those portraits um, or a particular portrait. Well, what I wanted to do with those portraits, I guess there were a total of about maybe six or seven or eight of them. I'm glad I'm glad people like them, and they, I may do some more of them. I was just what I did. I just kind of pull, I pulled out of the work I've done over the years these these moments where folks are being very smart. And there are often moments where we wouldn't expect it, you know, a special education. Yeah, we wouldn't expect it if we if we live by the kinds of stereotypes, right, about intelligence. That is, we so easily as a culture attribute it to certain kinds of folks in certain kinds of jobs or certain kinds of schools, um, but we don't attribute it to so many other. Um, and and what I tried to do in those portraits is to, you know, pull up folks in an adult literacy program taking a test or. Uh, a child in a middle school special ed class or um, a laborer, um, you know, just to, just to find these different moments where the, the surprise and majesty of human intelligence kind of bursts forth, right? And uh, I'm glad to hear that people, I'm glad to hear people like those. I'm sorry, you caught me by off guard. I was writing down that line, surprise and majesty, human intelligence. Um, you know, Mike, like, like I think like you, as you um, said in your start of your remarks to Shirley, I've felt in the last few weeks particularly that um, talk around school has taken yet another turn into the darkness. Yeah. Um, you know, I think this whole thing around the Rhode Island teachers, the Newsweek article that you already mentioned, um, it, the talk around teachers has been bad. Um, you begin your book by naming a desire to <clears throat> restart a public conversation about a hopeful vision, the possibility inherent in our nation's public schools. And we have just a few minutes left, but I was thinking, what if President Obama invited you to a beer summit, Mike? <laughs> Is there a thing you'd want to say to him about... I need to, get, I need to get into an altercation with the law. Perhaps that would work. Maybe you should break into your neighbor's house. No, I'm just kidding about that. Um, you told me to do it. <laughs> well, there you go. Then maybe we both get invited. Um, so what would you say to our president or, you know, to the nation, if you could sum it up, really we're down to a few minutes, but if you could sum up a thing, a message you'd like to share. You know what I think I'd say to him? Gosh, I mean, this is what I would say at this moment because I just recently read that radio speech of his. And I touched on this earlier. This, this would be a very personal kind of appeal. Um, I think I would say something like, 
You know, one of the things that I and so many other people really admire about you is uh, the fact that you are a very thoughtful person. And in your speech on race, for example, or the speech, the Nobel speech, whether people agreed with the point of view expressed there, both of those speeches revealed a, a deep learning, complicated thinker. Um, and I'd really like to talk to you, Mr. President, for a while, you know, kind of teacher to teacher, because you taught constitutional law. I'd like to talk to you about really what is it that education means to you? You know, forget the policy, forget everything else. What's it mean to you? What is it? What happens in these moments? And you and I both came from very humble origins, and education made our lives possible. What's that mean? Now, once we have this conversation, can we think of how to take some of that and infuse it into public policy? Because the policy coming out of your Department of Education seems to be so bleached of that kind of rich, deep understanding of teaching and learning. I think that's a conversation I'd love to have, and a few beers might help that happen. <laughs> well, I love it. So I am going to tell you, go ahead and break into your neighbor's house, whatever you think <laughs> it would do to get garner the attention. Um, I, I believe that Elise has some closing remarks. We're down to um, three or four minutes. Well, this was really this was very nice. That's right, and and what a what a wonderful hour to spend with you, Mike. Um, no, and really, I have. Oh, go really, ahead, please. No, I was just going to say it was really nice. Thank you, thank you both for for orchestrating it. Well, I think the the chat room has been um, buzzing. That's been wonderful. And so for those of you who are listening now live, you've been enjoying that, I hope. Uh, and some people have been listening through the audio only line. Uh, We'll also be, of course, making this episode available as an on-demand episode that people can listen to as a podcast. Um, you can find it on the Blog Talk Radio station, and you can also listen to it through iTunes. So please do. And if you're listening at that time, um, sorry that you've missed this wonderful chat, but we'll try to post some of the very best links in uh, a number of our other online presence places along with this chat. Uh, one of the times we are going to be rebroadcasting this episode, actually, will be uh, March 25th, which uh, for those of you in the Writing Project, you might be knowing that date as our spring meeting. And because we'll be at our spring meeting in Washington, D.C., uh, we'll use this episode for our regular Thursday blog talk radio session. And Mike, because we've been talking about public voice and policy, you should know we'll be, we in the National Writing Project will be there on Capitol Hill uh, trying to share our thoughts and ideas and also to advocate for the continuation of the National Writing Project. So we, uh, we have been uh, caught up in some of the policy shifts and the consolidation, budget consolidation shift. And we hope to be able to make it clear that teachers really need to be able to have this public forum, um, this community of practice, if we really are going to try and reach all young people and help them achieve it, the high standards that people say we would like to have. So uh, wish us luck when we get to Capitol Hill. Yeah, I sure do. It's exactly what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for joining us. I think uh, if you're listening live now, you should know that the chat will continue for a few minutes. And please feel free to, uh, to keep talking to each other in the chat room. And Mike, we really appreciate that you've joined us. And Tanya, thank you so much for 
for bringing your perspectives and also the thoughts and questions from the chat room into this discussion. Thank you. It was a pleasure, and thank you so much, Mike. Oh, thanks, folks. Really, uh, this was very nice, really nice. I, pr I appreciated it a lot. Okay, great. Thank you. And we will be soon then off the air. Thank you for joining us. Production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.